And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. I'm sure this is a somewhat familiar passage to you. You've probably heard a sermon or two from this text focusing on sacrificial giving, uh, using, of course, the widow as an example. Uh, If you've ever been involved in a capital fund campaign uh, in a church, then you've seen this passage used to demonstrate sacrificial giving, right? But I want us to back up a little bit before we jump into the interpretation and remind ourselves where we are. This is Tuesday, probably, of Passion Week. Could be Wednesday, but most likely Tuesday. This is the last week of our Lord's life here on this earth. Remember on Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday, he rode in to the adulation of the crowds as Messiah. Uh, On Monday, he cleared the temple. And now it's Tuesday, and all day he's been teaching the multitudes in the temple area. He's been confronted multiple times by these false religious leaders of Judaism who have tried to trap him. Uh, They're trying to catch him in his words so they might have some cause to have him executed. They want him out of here. Well, he has silenced them every time with his answer. Uh, He's thwarted their every attempt, so they're actually going to have to lie. They're going to have to fabricate a reason for the Romans to execute him come Friday. And they will, and they will. They'll fabricate, and they will execute him. Uh, They're done asking questions, though. Uh, We saw that last week. After this, they dared not ask him any more questions. It's over. At this point on this Tuesday, after a long day of teaching, he no longer addresses the crowd. This is that fickle crowd that, as I said, on uh, Sunday, uh, you know, hailed him as Messiah as he entered Jerusalem. And yet they're going to cry for his blood before Pilate in just a few more days. Now, he has no more to say to the crowds in general. He has no more to say to the false religious leaders. Uh, He's given them his last invitation. And he's given the the crowd their last invitation as well. I want you to follow the flow here, beginning with the next verse after our passage this morning. So verse 5 of chapter uh, 21, judgment is, is the theme. The time of invitation is over. The ministry of our Lord in these three, three and a half years has come to its end. No more gospel invitations. No more clarifications to the crowd and to the leaders. Jesus is finished in that regard. Their final assessment of him is that he is not the Messiah that they wanted, so they reject him, both leaders and the people at large. And so starting in chapter 21, verse 5, there comes this long message on destruction and judgment. Now, that judgment is going to begin in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple and the city and the nation of Israel. And this judgment is going to continue on the nation of Israel until Jesus comes again. In fact, the words that precede our passage this morning are clearly words of judgment. Beware of the scribes. Jesus is warning the people about just how dangerous they are. They, the scribes, will receive a greater condemnation. Now, he has pronounced judgment on the leaders and therefore judgment on the nation for following those leaders instead of receiving him. They have actually rejected him. So between the condemnation of the false leaders and the pronounced judgment that will last until Jesus comes, 
we have this little vignette about a window, uh, a widow, looks like window, widow, dropping two copper coins into the offering plate, the offering receptacle right there in the temple courts. The question is, what does this have to do with anything? How does it fit? Why does Luke inject this moment of reflection on a widow giving an offering in the temple into this section that's right in between a diatribe against the false leaders? Now, Luke's version isn't too uh, bombastic. Read Matthew 23. That's the long version of it. It's quite bombastic. It is a diatribe. So why does Luke put this little little vignette here of this widow giving what she has in the temple between a diatribe against the false leaders and a pronouncement of judgment on the temple, the city, and, and the nation. Why is it here? That's what we're going to try to figure out this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand the truth of, of, of why Luke chose to put this here. Why did Jesus comment about this widow putting in her two mites? Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, universally, commentators uh, tell us that Jesus is, Jesus is giving us a little glimpse of true worship in the middle of the false worship that dominates the temple. They tell us that it's a beautiful little story in the midst of ugliness. It's a little light in the midst of darkness. Uh, an illustration of giving till it hurts. And that's contrasted with the selfishness of the spiritual leaders. So that's kind of the traditional explanation of this passage. In fact, most scholars agree that this is a lesson on giving, but they can't agree with what the lesson is. And if you read 25 or 30 commentaries, let's say, on this passage, you're going to see many um, lessons suggested. They generally don't agree. Uh, matter of fact, I, this morning, just for kicks, I went to my computer and I have nine commentaries that's open. So when I click on a passage over here, I can click on this commentary, read what it says about it, click on it, do, do them like that. Well, two of the nine chose not to say anything. They skip it. <laughs> As if, as, as if they know that their thoughts are not the traditional views. And the other seven give some form of having to do with this being about giving. Now here are, the, here are four popular options. Number one, Jesus is teaching that the measure of the gift is not how much you give, but how much you have left over after the gift. How much did the widow have left over? Zippo, zilch. Option two, the true measure is the self-denial involved. Uh, it's the cost to the individual, which is really just another way to say option number one. Uh, percentage given is really what the issue is relative to one's expression of self-denial in that percentage. Now, we're, we're told that she gave 100%. So she gave the largest and the best gift. Option number three, the true measure of any gift is the attitude with which you give it. Uh, is it selfless? Is it humble? Does it express love for God, devotion to God, and trust in God? The widow, we are told, had the least left behind. She gave the highest percentage, and she expressed the, bad, the best attitude. I mean, you remember, she gave, gave it all willingly. That's option number three. Option four, 
The gift that truly pleases God is when you give everything and then take a, a vow of poverty. Now, all of these and combination of all of these are defended by virtually all who write on this text. Teachers have waxed eloquent, eloquently on them all over the years. And despite the popularity of these views, and even in Southern Baptist literature, I'm simply not convinced. They don't make sense to me. These interpretations are imposed on the text rather than drawn from it. Now, I did a little Q&A with Tyler this morning. What is the word, uh, Tyler, that, 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 that scholars like to use when it comes to reading something into the text? Eisegesis. Eisegesis. Iso means into. What are we looking for when we do proper interpretation? Exegesis. Exegesis means out of. That was God back there on the microphone in case you didn't hear. Um, yeah, that, that's the problem with all of these. They have been read into the text. Now, why is that so important? It's, because, it's been important because Jesus never said anything about what's left behind. What percentage, what attitude, or to do the same and give everything. Jesus never makes those points. He didn't say the rich gave relatively too little and that they had too much left over. He didn't say the rich gave too low a percentage. He didn't say the widow gave just the right amount. He didn't say the rich had a bad attitude and the widow had a good attitude. He didn't say any of that. In fact, he didn't say anything about their giving except that she gave more than everybody. He didn't say why or with what attitude or whether she should have or shouldn't have or whether the disciples should have or shouldn't have. Her outward action is all that we see. It's no more or less good, bad, indifferent, humble, proud, selfish, or unselfish than anybody else's act of giving. Now, there's no judgment made on her act as to its true character. There's nothing said about her attitude or her spirit. She could be acting out of devotion. She could be acting out of love. She could be acting out of guilt. Maybe she's acting out of fear. We don't know because Jesus doesn't say. He knew, but he chose not to comment. He doesn't say anything about the rich. He doesn't say anything about the widow. doesn't draw any conclusions. doesn't develop any principles. doesn't command anything. doesn't define anything. Why? Because none of that matters. The only thing I can conclude is if Jesus had wanted to say any of that here, he could have said it, but he didn't. The story then is not designed to teach any of those things. It's not designed to, to teach us about percentages, about how much you have left over or about your attitude in giving. It's not designed te to teach anything about giving. Now, there is one thing that's rather apparent here, and, and this is really the bottom line, and that's she gave everything. So if there's one lesson that should be obvious and that we really shouldn't need to be stating it again, it is that God expects you to give 100% of what you have. So with that in mind, we're going, we're going to pass around the offering plates. And as they come by, let's put in everything that we have. Wallets, keys, rings, jewelry, cell phones. If you've got your checkbook, go ahead and make out a big fat one that drains all of your accounts. 
If you don't have a checkbook, come back next week. We'll do it again. Okay? And don't forget the title to your cars. We'd like those as well. Nobody's doing anything. Does that strike you as odd? You're all smiling because you think I'm kidding, and I am. But why? Why aren't we chomping at the bit to throw in our all into the pot? Could it be that that's not biblical? Could it be that deep down we know that's not how this passage is to be interpreted? To do so would actually be irresponsible. It's foolishness. There are over 2,500 verses in the Bible that have to do with money and its proper stewardship. Now that I know of, only two talk about getting rid of everything. One is our passage this morning. What's the other one? Anybody? The rich young ruler. Remember? Uh, all these I've done from my youth. Jesus says you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus is simply exposing his idolatrous relationship with wealth. Let's think about the young man. What did he do? He went away sad and still lost. So you've got 2,500 verses on money and its proper stewardship, its proper usage. That's why it felt uncomfortable a minute ago when I asked you to give everything. Jesus doesn't want us to give away all that we have. We're to use what we have to provide for our families, to provide for those in need, and to further expand the kingdom of God on this earth. Now, after the first service, Brother Kenneth, Kenneth Holland came up to me. Y'all know he was pastor for 14 years at Thomasville Road Baptist Church from 68 to 82. He's the one that moved them out to their current campus and then went on to work 36 more years in state conventions. Well, when he went to work for the Florida Baptist Convention, he was in the stewardship department. He told me that this, this morning. And he said, it was such an incredible difference maker in my life when I realized that we have money for three things. Three Anything outside of these three things is secondary. Number one is to support our family. Number two, he put number two, to support the kingdom of God. And number three is to support those in need. Well, that's just a different order of what I just said. Provide for your families, provide for those in need, and provide for the kingdom of God, to help expand the kingdom of God. Now, I want to reference just one example in Scripture. In Mark 7, we find these words, this is Jesus speaking. You are experts, he's speaking to some religious authorities, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So they're elevating tradition over the word of God, and we know that's not right. For Moses said, now he's going to Scripture. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Kids, did y'all hear that? That's serious stuff. You know honor your mother and father comes before you shall not commit murder. It's serious. You're to honor your parents. That's free. But you say, you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would have helped you is Corban. 
Now, in Scripture, we have a parenthesis because Luke is writing to Gentiles. Gentiles don't know what Corban is. So he tells us, Corban, that is to say, given to God. It's a special gift to God. So, he says, you are no longer, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God. Honor your father and mother by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as this. You understand what's going on? Corbin was a special gift to God. And when these parents were in trouble, they would say, oh, I've given, I've given a special gift to God and I can't help you, my parents. And Jesus says, no, that is wrong. He condemns the tradition of Corbin if given in lieu of honoring your parents by helping support them. See, God's law was never given to impoverish people, but to help them. Man wasn't made for the law. The law was made for man. Jesus says to support your parents before you give this special gift to God. Let's apply that to our verses here this morning. How could you ever help support your parents if you gave everything you had to the church and the work of God? Do you see that you can only do that one time? What happens when you do that? You are now destitute. You are now one that needs charity. So you can only do it one time. Jesus didn't commend the widow's actions. There's no comment that he appreciated the gesture or loved her for it. No mention that she is now in the kingdom of God. He didn't invite the disciples to do the same. He simply stated a fact. So again, I say that this passage is not intended to teach us anything about giving. Now, context supports that view as well. In the verses that precede it, Jesus condemns the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. In the verses that follow our passage this morning, Jesus foretells the judgment that will befall the temple and the religious system supporting it, as well as the city of Jerusalem. And stuck in the middle of, is this little ditty about giving? I don't think so. As I said, Mark contains this little ditty in the same chapter. It's all at the end of the chapter, all the way through part of the judgment. It, it, it lets us know that this is one continuous thing. When you just pick up and you start at 21, you go, oh, look at there, there's a widow giving everything she's got. How lovely. That's not the context. Both before and after this passage, this is all about the condemnation of the wicked spiritual leaders and a corrupt religious system that is about to be destroyed. So, Take a little sidebar here. The tendency is to see Jesus as approving the widow's action as if it were commendable, as if it were good. In other words, uh, they want to look at it as he was pleased with her actions. But I don't think what she did pleased him. In fact, I think it was more than displeasing. I think it angered him. Think of it this way. How would you feel? Uh, you're a person who loves the Lord. You love others. You care about their needs. How would you feel if you saw a destitute widow who only had two little coins left to buy her food for the next meal and give those two coins to a religious system? How would you feel? Well, you'd say something is wrong with that religious system when it takes the last two coins out of a widow's hand. Now, that's what you'd say, and guess what? You'd be right for saying it. 
So again, how would you feel if you saw a, a destitute, impoverished person giving her last hope for life to her religion just to go home, perhaps, and die? You'd be sick. You'd feel terrible. Any religion that is built on the back of the poor is a false religion. What a sad misguided, woeful, victimized lady this widow was. It's tragic. It's painful. And I think that's exactly how Jesus saw it. She was hoping that, that maybe in this legalistic system, her two coins that she would put in her last two coins would buy some blessing. The rabbis had said that with alms, you purchase your salvation. What are alms giving to the poor? Was she trying to buy her way into heaven? Was she trying to buy relief from her desperation, from her destitution? Maybe she was watching TBN the night before and some televangelist said, hey, send me your money and God will give it back to you uh, 10 times over. God doesn't want a widow to give up her last two cents. The system that had developed in Judaism abused poor people. This widow was manipulated by a religious system that was corrupt. This is not about Jesus honoring giving. This is about a victim of a corporate or corrupt system who is literally rendered destitute trying to live up to that, to that system and earn heaven. Let's go back in our account to Luke 21. It's late Tuesday afternoon after a long day of being verbally assaulted by the religious leaders and teaching the crowds and the disciples. Jesus is no doubt tired. Remember, he was human. He got tired. Luke says that Jesus looked up. What does that mean? He had been looking down. It's not difficult, y'all. It's not rocket science here. All right. He's looking down. Perhaps he's contemplating the damning religion of Judaism and the fact that the temple where he sat was so corrupt and its religion so ungodly that it, along with the city of Jerusalem and her people, would be totally destroyed and kept under judgment. Well, Luke says he looked up and he sees people putting money into the treasury. In Matthew 6, Jesus told us where we're to do our giving. Do you remember what he said? Do it in secret. Do it in secret. But this religious system had developed a very public and prominent way to do your giving. Thirteen shofar-shaped chests, or shofar chests shaped like trumpets, they were set up in the court of women. This is a large court that was open to the men and women. And this is where the, the giving chests were. Each chest was marked as to what the offering in that chest would be used for. You had uh, stuff like shekel offerings, wood for the altar, incense, gold, free will offerings. The chests were made out of metal. They didn't have uh, our paper money. All they had was coins. That was their money in the day. So when you tossed it in, what would happen? It would clank rather loudly. In this way, you could actually announce your offering. Imagine walking up there with two copper coins and tossing it in, and somebody hears clink, clink. And somebody comes up with, behind them with a, a jar full of quarters, let's just say. You actually announce your offering. So first, Jesus sees rich people coming and putting their money into the treasury. 
Now, the word for rich means that they had a full supply. It doesn't mean super rich or mega rich like we would use the rich today. These were the non-poor. Those who had enough to put a large sum into the treasury and yet still have plenty to live on. I picture them as kind of like us. Most of us can leave a sizable offering and still have plenty for food. Then Jesus sees a certain widow. Now, he uses a word to describe her that means poor, but not destitute. It's way down there, but it's not at the bottom yet. Jesus sees her put in two copper coins to lepta, L-E-P-T-A. It's the smallest Jewish coin in circulation at that time. According to verse 44, it was all she had to live on. All right, so these two copper coins. When she puts them in, Jesus describes her again, but this time it's using a word that does mean destitute. She is at the bottom financially. Everything she has given, I mean, everything she has, she has given. Now, at this point, my mind is drawn back to our text from last week when Jesus characterized the scribes as devouring widows' houses. Do you remember it? It's Luke uh, chapter 20, begins in verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectable greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. And now verse 47, who devour widows' homes. And for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive con greater condemnation. One of the things that Jesus indicts them for is their severe abuse of widows. This system abused the poor and defenseless for which they only had disdain, talking about the leaders. Obviously, poor widows were under the judgment of God. That's why they were poor widows. And beyond that, they were women, and women were second-class citizens. The Pharisees prayed every day, Lord, make me not a Gentile or a woman. And because they were widows, they were defenseless. They were easy prey. So do you see what's going on here now in context? One of these widows just mentioned in verse 47 is now here in the temple. She is the ultimate illustration of a widow whose house has been devoured by these scribes and she's putting in her last two cents. She gives her life to this system that has taken everything that she has. So this is her last act of charity in hopes that she might find favor with God. It's likely that she'll go home and die. Jesus isn't commending her. She's a victim. He's not proud of her. He's not making her an example of sacrificial giving. He's observing the corruption of the system that's going to be destroyed under the leadership of these already condemned leaders. They're exploiting the most defenseless, the most impoverished people, like this widow. Jesus certainly is not saying that she gave her last cent and that's what you should do as well. He doesn't want you to give up everything you've got and go home and die. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that he richly supplies us all things to enjoy. Now, I believe this is merely an illustration of the wicked leaders of this false religion and their abuse of the weak and the defenseless. 
James 1.27 says that true religion doesn't abuse the poor. So if I can remember, true religion is this, that you take care of the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows. True religion before God is this, take care of the orphans and the widows and, and, and stay separate from the world. Interesting, to boil true religion down to that. Notice two things. Care for two people that can't take care of themselves, orphans and widows. Well, woe to you who abuse women, widows, the distressed, the downcast, the poor and the sick, with any lying promises just to get their money. That's false. That's a false religion, and it will be destroyed. Now, let's look just quickly at a, 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 a scene where a widow is taken care of. Think back to the cross. Mary and a few other women are at the foot of the cross, and so is one of the disciples. We believe it's John. And so he looks down, Jesus, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Talking about John standing next to her. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, uh, John tells us, the disciple took her into his own household. So even in the torment of the cross, Jesus carefully and compassionately makes provision for his widowed mother. Jesus cared for widows. God cares for widows. We should care for widows. This passage is not about money and giving. It's an illustration of the false religion Judaism had become in the time of Jesus. Now, it stands as a warning for us today. Lest we become a false religion that cares more about our financial coffers than helping those in need. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. It challenges us way more than we want to be challenged sometimes. And uh, this could be one of those, Father, where we see, yeah, uh, this is the reality of a false religion and what it has done to this widow. Her house has been devoured and now she's giving what little money she has left. She has no hope. Uh, Father, we're grateful that in Christ we have hope. <laughs> so we thank you for that. Just ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts, uh, Lord, as we reach out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, you know, the main thing here is uh, I want you to think about have you uh, come to a to decision to know God through Jesus Christ? Um, anything out, you know, somebody somebody said has said this. There are you know hundreds of ways or thousands of ways to God. I, I, I disagree with that statement. They're they're talking about all the different world religions, and they picture is it like you're on a mountain? God is at the top. And this religion, whatever it is, maybe it's Southern Baptist like up, goes up this way. And, you know, Catholics go this way and Buddhists go this way and, you know, uh, Muslims go this way. But, but, but everybody has a way to God. That, that's false. <laughs> if you believe Scripture, Scripture in, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. Remember, he's at the top. No man comes to the Father unless... Uh, he goes except through me, meaning through Jesus. I will say this. There is only one way to God, and that's Jesus. But there are, goodness, hundreds of ways to get to Jesus. I've heard testimony of people picking up a piece of, piece of paper on the ground, and it's a, it's a, it's a, 
it was torn out of a Bible and it's just laying there and they read it. And God uses his scripture to change their heart on the spot. Sometimes it's in a song. Sometimes it's in the preaching of the word. Sometimes it's in the demonstration of love in a little act, an act of love, uh, sacrificial love. There's all kind of ways to come to Jesus. Okay, he is available. If you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, I invite you to come this morning. We'll pray. We'll look into his word and see what scripture says about knowing God through his son, Jesus. If you're a believer, man, this says a lot to us about just the reality of our finances. It, it, in this way, it is a financial thing. As I said, we have money, and I think there are three primary purposes for our money. And I said primary. Uh, there's all kind of other things we can do and we do do, and it's okay to do. But there are three primary. One is to take care of our family. Two is to expand the kingdom of God. Three is to help those who are in need, just like James 1.27 said, the fatherless, the widows, the ones who cannot take care of themselves. We help take care of them. I hope you're, I hope you're doing that. I hope you're not so self-absorbed that all of your money is focused strictly on you. Oh, sure, you, you give a little toss to the church every now and then. No, we want to give generously to the church, but we want to give generously to others as well that need help. That's why God has given us money. That's why I have just, I'm not going to say nothing because um, this is being videoed right now. I would tell you, but I'm not going to, I don't want to tell the world. Um, anyway, uh, God wants us to be generous with what he has given us. He's not given it to us just for ourselves. It has other purposes. When, when Kenneth, he told me, he says, when I learned that, you know, this was 40 years ago. He says, when I learned that, uh, it really changed how I did my shopping when I realized that my money is to support my family, support the kingdom of God, and support others. It, it, it's a scriptural mandate. I think it's right. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.